HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following program is brought to you by Susty Party, an online party supply store for eco-friendly party products and biodegradable compostable tableware. For more information, visit SustyParty.com. Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here with, I'd like to call you the pro gourmet now, <laughs> Adam Roberts, formerly known as the amateur gourmet, still known as the amateur gourmet. It's true. I've, I've, I've been the amateur gourmet now for almost nine years. So yeah. at this point, I don't think I'm ever going pro, I think. I just well, have to embrace it. Maybe minor leagues or some <laughs> subsidiary system, but... The Secrets of the Best Chefs, your new cookbook uh, coming out very soon, Mm -hmm. is not only an excellent read, but it's like, you know, that butterfly uh, coming out of its womb, spreading its wings. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That's quite a metaphor. Thank you. I I try. I think it's been used before. I don't think it's original. (laughs) I've never heard of a butterfly coming out of a womb. So that's kind of a a nice image. Yeah, Yeah. it was a very odd pregnancy. (laughs) Long story, but that's for another episode. Okay. you started a blog how many years ago? Uh, 2004, so almost nine years ago. Yeah. Got this cult following, uh, have worked with the Food Network, have written for plenty of magazines, but food was not always in your life. Uh, where did you grow up? What did you eat? What did you cook? Well, it's funny because I, like my, my normal spiel is that I grew up in a family where there wasn't much cooking, and that's still true. Like Nobody cooked in my childhood. My parents didn't cook. My grandmother didn't cook. Just there was no home cooking, and we ate out all the time. And, um, and so I often like, will tell the stories of just like, you know, we had four ovens in our house because the previous owner was a baker <laughs> and my mom stored her pocketbooks and shoes in the ovens. <laughs> but what I n- often neglect to talk about is that I came from a Jewish family that was obsessed with meals. And so even though it wasn't 
cooking, there was no cooking at home. We every meal was something that was discussed nonstop. You know, from like the moment lunch is over, it's already a huge conversation about where we're having dinner. Yeah. So even though I grew up in a family where there wasn't any cooking, there was tons of concentration on eating. And so I did grow up in a food obsessed family that didn't cook. And yeah. so the only real difference is that I started cooking <laughs> and that led to my career. So. I mean, where Yom Kippur is right now, you know, uh, Rosh Hashanah just happened. We got Sukkos. Did you cook uh, with holidays uh, in mind or every day was a holiday feast? No, no, no. I mean, so when I say we ate out all the time, it was not a fancy meal every night. You yeah. know, we would go to just very pedestrian everyday restaurants like the Olive Garden or like TGI Fridays. It was more like my dad would be coming home from work and we'd be coming home from school and my mom would be like, hey, where are we going to go tonight? And we would just go somewhere yeah. and eat a meal. And, and what was interesting about it is my mom even though she didn't cook, she still took great care to pay attention to like what we were ordering for dinner. You know, you shouldn't get that. You had that last night or maybe you should have a salad. So there was like sort of like the Jewish mother, like nurturing her children at a meal, but it was at a restaurant. It just wasn't at home. That's funny. I wonder, you know, the the term foodie, uh, I think there's the preconception that most just go out to eat, but obviously a lot cook these Mm -hmm. days too. And I wonder if there was a switch at some point where, you know, foodies learn how to cook for themselves. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was just so novel. Like when I started cooking, it just the idea that something that I could do in the kitchen would smell that good or that like I could like produce a roast chicken that was brown and beautiful and like glistening out of the oven. Like I could do that. It was just, it was like mind blowing that I can make that happen. You yeah. Know? So I think for a lot of people that think of cooking as a chore or as a task, like just to get dinner on the table, I never had to go through that because I wasn't cooking for a family. I was just cooking for myself when I started. Yeah. So that made it easier. Well, I mean, what were you cooking for? When you started in 2004, you were at Emory University yeah. studying law of mm-hmm. all things, not food law. <laughs> No, not food law. <laughs> Although, as I was going to drop out many times, my parents said, you could be a food lawyer, <laughs> which I still have no idea what a food lawyer is. Yeah, yeah. But I'm sure there is one. Um, but yeah, so I was in law school, and w- and what would happen is I would come home at, at from class every day. My brain would be fried, and I felt very out of place there. I, w- I was not a natural lawyer um, by any means. And I just started watching the Food Network. It was back in the day of Mario Batali and Sarah Moulton. And so I would watch their shows, and I would really... I would just sort of vegetate in front of the television, just watching them cook. And I found it very relaxing just to watch it. And I wasn't cooking at all. And then somehow at some point I was like, I'm going to try to do what I just saw them do. And I wrote down a recipe. Um, the story changes from time to time. Sometimes I say it was Mario <laughs> Batali's tomato sauce. Other times it was a chili recipe from the Betty Crocker cookbook, which was my first cookbook that I bought. Yeah. Whichever it was that I very, the very first time I cooked, it was, it was, you know, a transformative experience because I loved it so much. I mean, did you have a pantry? Did you have those things in the house? Did you have to go out and venture to the supermarket? And no, I mean, things? I was so intimidated at the very beginning because I had no frame of reference. It, like I would watch Mario on TV and he'd say something like, it's very important to choose a good olive oil. You want a quality olive oil when you cook. So I would go to the grocery store and stand for like 20 minutes <laughs> staring at olive oil. Like, what do I do? Like, how do I choose? Like, yeah. I don't want to spend $25. Like, how much am I supposed to spend? Like, it was just very basic questions that most people have some sense of what they want to do or how it works. And I had no frame of reference. So I was starting from scratch. Yeah. So aside from those first recipes that you're trying to cook off the Food Network, what were your signature recipes that you ended up developing and cooking over and over? Well, it was very gradual. I mean, it was sort of like those first couple of years, I just really genuinely had disaster after disaster. It wasn't like I was a good cook by any means. And what's funny is that my roommate at the time, uh, Loren, uh, 
probably would never say that I was a good cook, you yeah. know, because I lived with her and she was like the victim of most of my experiments. <laughs> and, um, and so if you go into the archives of my blog and look at the first year or two, you'll just see like, you know, the, the coffee cake that, that like melted when I took it out, you know, like it had like oozing batter coming out of it when I cut into it or like, um, that's what we call molten, molten, <laughs> molten coffee cake. Exactly. So, I mean, I, I was just sort of learning and learning as I went. And what was interesting is the moment where I clicked over and became a good cook was actually when I started dating my partner, Craig, we started dating, um, 2006. Um, so I, at that point was a good enough cook that like, he only thinks of me as a great cook. <laughs> so like I got to, you know, like be a bad cook for a couple of yeah. years. And then, you know, I think cooking, I actually think there's just some truth to the fact that if you're cooking for someone else regularly, um, you become a better cook. If you are cooking for yourself, it's harder to like, you know, uh, be motivated when you have a disaster to go on to the next thing. But I think uh, cooking for in a couple actually makes it easier to be a cook. That's a funny thing too. Uh, I mean, very interesting thing to say because, you know, a lot of people sit there and try to cook at home. But yeah, it's not even the pressure. But trying to impress somebody with food, I think you're definitely more uh, stringent to, you know, how you flavor things and how you... Having an audience, I think, helps a lot when you cook. Yeah. I mean, when I was single and I was cooking... I, um, you know, it was hard to motivate myself. I mean, it's just expensive, too. I mean, to go out and buy the ingredients to make a dish for one person, it's hard to justify that. But if it's for more than one person, then I think you can make it, you know, make it uh, make sense for yourself. So, so you, you say archiving. Um, when you started your blog in 2004, do you remember your first entry? Oh, yes. Yeah. I remember it very well. Because you have to remember, like, I was, um, I was in, a, in a situation, I was in law school where I was, deeply unhappy and this was my lifeline that I was throwing myself so I started this blog and the very first post like basically says very straightforwardly I need to rescue myself from a career in the law like this is my attempt to like create something that will you know save me from being a lawyer yeah this has to take off like I need this blog to be successful and you know and I had that motivation right away when I started and so like when I started I had like you know 10 or 11 readers and it, it last it was that way for a couple of weeks and then I, I don't know if you know this story because i've told it many times but janet jackson showed her breast at the super bowl and i made it ja- i made a janet jackson breast cupcake <laughs> that i put on my blog and um and the next day the blog like blew up it was on cnn it was on um you know instapundit and uh collegehumor.com yeah. and all these websites and i had like all of a sudden like <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people coming have you ever thanked janet jackson's breast no one day i'm gonna have to <laughs> publicly thank yeah. her. I, yeah i was looking the acknowledgements in the, in the book and that that was oh, uh, you know, a wonderful opportunity i should have thanked her her breast in the book yeah. but i didn't do it well it's funny because it's like now i'm sort of like a quote unquote like serious food writer i have this cookbook that just came out i'm like writing for food and wine now and it's hilarious like when I tell my origin story that I have to sort of incorporate Janet Jackson breast cupcake into yeah. the origin story. <laughs> but, you know, it's true. That's how it started. And is that recipe actually online? It's still there. Okay. It's a mocha frosting from Nigella Lawson <laughs> with a Hershey kiss in the middle. That's fantastic. Um, so, I mean, that obviously illustrates how playful you are. Mm-hmm. This book is not serious, even though you're dealing with a serious subject and serious people trying to become a better chef. Um, when did you, I'm not going to say take the play out of it, but when did you want to become more professional in your cooking career? That's a really good good question because I've never compartmentalized, you know, I've never said, oh, that was the period where I was silly and this is the period where I'm serious, but it very naturally happened. I think what, I think the real answer to the question is when the, when the food media started to notice me and embrace me, 
it changed things for me because up until that point, I was just this wacky, weird guy, like making food disasters in my kitchen and taking pictures of like, you know, gross things that, you know, didn't come out very well. And actually, it was John Kessler from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He's one of the country's best food writers. He's an amazing food critic. Um, and he's the current food critic uh, for the AJC. He wrote this giant profile of me when I was living in Atlanta um, just in the first year of my food blog. And really, I think what was interesting about it was um, it was right at the birth of food blogs. It was, you know, I started my food blog in 2004 when there really weren't that many food blogs. I mean, now it's there's just so many that it's like laughable. <laughs> yeah. but, but do you commiserate with like that OG, that old guard of food bloggers? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a certain group of people like David Leibovitz and um, Smitten Kitchen and uh, Simply Recipes and Shea Pim and Chocolate and Zucchini and Orange Jet. Like all of us, we're the old guard. We, I mean, we're, we, I think we think of ourselves that way because we were doing it way before and it's not even like people who start blogs now aren't cool and can't be part of that but it's more just that like when we were doing it we were so weird and strange and it was just so unusual to be doing what we were doing that we just connected on that level but anyway so when john kessler wrote this big article about my blog i think other food media people started following me i just got the sense suddenly you know as very gradually but over time that like okay now i'm being read by food people and maybe i should be you know started thinking more seriously about food and I started reading more food books and and reading like the newspaper food section every week and gradually I just started to get immersed into the food culture which I had nothing I didn't really understand anything about yeah food media and all the famous New York Times food writers and who the critics were and what the restaurants were and you know MFK Fisher and all that stuff I just started to educate myself and so that's sort of how it happened. So your first book, um, what year was that sold and printed? I want to say that happened in 2007. Um, it's like everything blurs together because it all happened <laughs> so quickly. But yeah, I graduated from, um, let's see, I graduated from law school in 2004 and moved to New York and sold that book pretty quickly when I got here. So I think it came out 2007. And it was just a book of essays called The Amateur Gourmet that uh, attempted to distill my journey from knowing absolutely nothing about food to knowing more than nothing about food. And I actually still think it's a good book because of that, because it really is just for very beginners. The people who really legitimately don't know anything about food um, can read that book and start to get a handle on things. I mean, have you put your pitches of those two books side by side and just compared the tones in Hmm. in which you wrote? You mean this book now, the new book? Uh, No, I mean, but what's interesting is I think the sensibility of the first book is still in this new book. It's still the same mindset, which is, you know, I'm not presenting myself as an authority, really. I mean, I'm still the average Joe, but now I'm learning from great chefs and I'm trying to distill what they're teaching me through the sensibility of a home cook. Oh, yeah. You are the best surrogate we can ask for. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, yeah. That's sort of my role. But that that inquisition, uh, that idea of trying to find these best people around, I mean did you have that one-on-one experience prior to, you know, your first book being sold? Did you know chefs? Did you go into restaurants and talk to them? Or was it all like, you know, internalized? Well, the first book had Amanda Hesser uh, teaching me how to go food shopping at the farmer's market and Ruth Reichel teaching me how to uh, go out to a restaurant. But they were more food writers. It really wasn't chefs in the first book. And what really happened between the first book and the second book was the Food Network had hired me to do a web show for them. Um, was that the FN Dish? That was called yeah. the FN Dish. And that was sort of my Ryan Seacrest era where they gave me a microphone and like... It's better than having a Dick Clark era. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Especially now. I know. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, then it kind of forced me into situations where I would like be shoving a microphone into someone's face, yeah. like an Anthony Bourdain and all these people. And I kind of retrospectively 
realized like that's not for me like i'm not the guy with the microphone that wants to sh- yeah it's not what i want to do so anyways i finished that show and um started another show which was really fun it was called the amateur gourmet show and it was on food2.com and for that show we had different chefs teaching me classic dishes so i was learning how to make an omelet learning how to make um, a meatloaf and all these things and that's when i really started meeting chefs and that actually more than anything was probably the impetus for the current book yeah where i went and cooked with chefs yeah so i mean you're learning dishes there you're learning foundations and techniques mm-hmm. and tips and the insider info more so in here um because when you were on food too uh, what were some of the dishes that you cooked and are they still in your repertoire or have they changed because of your new experiences well you know i mean there, there were some just very basic things in there i mean actually the, the steak recipe which we learned at blt steak is wonderful i mean it's such a basic recipe but it works so well and it's basically just get a cast iron skillet blazingly hot and then you you know you get, put salt and pepper all over a steak and you add it with a little oil into the skillet and you sear it like crazy and then when you flip it over you put a dab of butter and some thyme and garlic and stick it into a 450 degree oven and baste it and let it finish and it's a great I mean I can't imagine a better technique for making steak at home so that's a great one but you know with the with this book you know secrets of the best chefs I really wanted to it wasn't so much just the recipes and just the techniques. I really, my biggest goal with it was to also sort of incorporate the essence of who the chefs were and their personalities and sort of identify what are the things about these people as people that informs their food and how can we learn from that as home cooks? Like, how can we start to express ourselves through what we cook? And so all the all the chapters in The Secrets of the Best Chefs um, start with an essay about my experience being with this person in their kitchen and sort of the personal things that I observed uh, as they cooked. And their, and their personalities ranged from the incredibly quiet and sweet to the incredibly overbearing and intimidating and scary. You know, but like all those personalities <laughs> were reflected in the food, which I thought was really interesting. I can't wait to see who the scary ones are. <laughs> we're going to take a quick break, come back and learn some of the secrets of the best chefs from Adam Roberts, the amateur gourmet. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back.
I'm Emily Dubois. And I'm Jessica Holsey. We are the entrepreneurs behind Susty Party. Susty Party creates responsibly made, eco-friendly party supplies and compostable tableware. Parties and events generate the second largest amount of waste in the USA, just behind the construction industry. Susty Party products make parties more sustainable and sustainability a little more fun. Susty Party plates, bowls, and straws are available in Whole Foods retail stores and also at SustyParty.com. We offer a curated selection of other Susty-approved party supplies. We also have a commercial division, Sustyware, that sells compostable tableware in bulk to businesses and food service industry establishments. Susty Party is a certified youth trade company and B Corporation. Our social, economic, environmental, and even spiritual values drive Susty Party to live our motto, Respect Respect Earth Earth and and Party On! Hey, and welcome back to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here again with Adam Roberts, the amateur gourmet. We're going to jump into some of these secrets. Okay. But they're not secrets anymore because you wrote a book about them. That's true. Um, (laughs) Amazing chefs. I mean, how many? 50 in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, From Alice Waters, Jonathan Waxman, uh, Alex Raj, Edda Montero. Uh, I can keep on going. Melissa Clark's in here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sarah Moulton. Sarah Moulton. That was a real yeah. thrill to get to go to her yeah. kitchen and cook with her. Yeah. She is, well, she's been on the show and she explained the height of the kitchen as well because she's, she's a shorter figure. Mm-hmm. Um, but she did that wonderful apple tart in your book and it shows her prowess and skill. Um, how did you collect these chefs? How did you approach these people and how intimidated were you walking into their kitchens? I think it's sort of like, I wish there was like, a, a, you studied art history, right? Is yeah. That like like a, art, a piece of art, like where you start like at the center and then you build outward and build outward and build outward. Is that sort of like the like Buddhist, like monks? Oh, they, like sand mandalas. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's a good metaphor <laughs> for it. But like, so it started very organically. I mean, basically the very first chef in the whole book was Melissa Clark from the New York Times. And that just sort of just happened that way because I'd met her. And I thought what she did, I mean, everyone I cooked with, I wanted to identify a reason to specifically learn something specific from them. So with her, it was, okay, how do you develop recipes for the New York Times every week? Like, what do you do to come up with an original recipe that you can publish in this huge newspaper, you know, the newspaper of record every single week? And so that was my goal, cooking with her. And, you know, when you read the essay in the book, you'll learn that part of what she does is she just you know, flies around her kitchen trying all different combinations of things. And, you know, if it doesn't work, she moves on. And as she has a quote in there, it says, you know, if you fail at something, uh, just call it recipe developing or something, you know, <laughs> and it's true. And it's, it's just like, so I learned from her, like just having momentum and just being brave and fearless and just, you know, running around the kitchen and trying things is how you develop recipes. So to answer your question, like, so from her, then I would think, okay, what do I want to learn next? Do I want to learn, you know, how to, uh, you know, do something like fancy, like French, or do I want to do something um, simple and homemade? You know, like, so it sort of grew organically out from the center. Yeah, well, I mean, talking about Melissa, you actually have two sections in your book, your your Mm -hmm. how-tos, and the 10 essential rules, which I, I love. And well, you said developing, uh, recipe <laughs> developing. One of your last rules is, you remember, everybody makes mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of your how-tos or things that you wanted to accomplish was creating a recipe. I think those are two of the more daunting things and obviously end goals to a, a project like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but you did things like just simply learn how to properly dress a salad, bake a no-fail pie crust, make light and airy pasta, stir-fry in a wok, improve your knife skills. I mean, th- these are fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Um, 
were you trying to pull a fu- fundamental thing from each person too? Um, because you know, you're saying that you're going to Melissa for recipe development writing. Um, who else did you go to for very specific things? That's a good question. I mean, you know, now that I said that, I'm like, okay, I have to think, like, why did I go to this person? But, you know, it's sort of like, um, okay, like Asha Gomez uh, is an incredible southern Indian home cook who now has a restaurant in Atlanta called Cardamom Hill. But, you know, um, I'd heard about her through the grapevine from the Atlanta food scene. And, you know, she makes this very rustic, very authentic Indian cuisine. And so I wanted to learn from her, you know, like I wanted to learn that kind of cooking it was something very different from all the other kind of cooking so i had that intention going to cook with her and then you know um one of my favorite favorite chefs in the whole book is angelis wilson who's a soul food chef in athens georgia um who had a restaurant called wilson soul food and i really wanted to include her in the book because i wanted to um balance that out you know we have like michelle richard from citronelle in washington dc and he's a michelin starred chef that's cooked for paul bocuse you know and he's as high end as you can get, but I also wanted to lend legitimacy to the, the kind of soul food, comfort food kind of cooking that Angelus did. So, I mean, it just, I really, I wanted to have, create a spectrum of yeah. all different kinds of chefs and all different kinds of cuisines and really see what I can distill from all of this. And to answer your question about techniques, you know, and sort of what was interesting is I, I'd never went to, to somebody specific for specific technique, but so many of these techniques were just so universal that by the end, it just got hammered into me, like, like sharpening your knife. It was just every single chef that I cooked with would take out the, you know, the steel and steal their knife, you know, just like you see on Top Chef, that, yeah. that like slashing sound, but they would all do it. They would just do it so automatically and every single chef would do it that by the time I got home and started recipe testing, I would do it automatically. So it just got you know hammered into me and the same thing with getting your pans really hot you know susan fenniger of all the chefs was the one that got her pans so crazy hot yeah there'd be like flames shooting up whenever (laughs) she added something um and so just that too like being learning to be fearless in the kitchen and you know when you add salt to something i might have been timid before but after cooking with these chefs i would take like a handful of salt and like dump it on everything you know so just really learning uh to be a little bolder and braver and all that stuff yeah. No, I mean, it's fascinating for you to hear that these things that are usually uh, relegated to a restaurant kitchen uh, so easily convert. People are scared of scorching their pans. Mm-hmm. You know, people are scared of these things and to get over that fear and actually introduce it. It works in a restaurant. That's where you love eating. Why not bring it home? And there's a real practicality to it, too, which is what really got through to me, which is like, yeah, you don't have to get your pan as hot as Susan Fenniger, But if you don't, you're not going to get the same sear on what you're making. So it's not going to look like it does at a restaurant. So yeah. that's why a lot of people who wonder, why does my food at home not look like it does when I go out to dinner? It's like a lot of those things are... That's the answer. Yeah. yeah. Well, you talk about these instinctual things that, that now are embedded in your cooking nature. Um, and you kind of give those as essential rules in, in the book as well. Mm-hmm. So tasting as you go, putting your ingredients on display. If it looks good before you cook it, it will taste good after. I, I love that one. And <laughs> it's so true. Um, yeah. That was just because so many of the chefs would assemble something gorgeous and it would not even be cooked. Like like Charles Fan uh, from the Slanted Door in San Francisco is an incredible chef. And he was making this steamed chicken dish in a clay pot. And it was pieces of raw chicken, which never look attractive. No one wants, <laughs> there's nothing appetizing about raw chicken. But the way he had dressed it with um, like ginger and, you know, and uh, 
fermented beans and all that, and scallions and it was just sitting there about to go into the steamer and just looking at it it already looked beautiful and i think that's where i got that idea for that rule which is just you know you should just get a sense that something's going to taste delicious even before you cook it um just by looking at it yeah and talk about you know the the internal timer to oh, these yeah. things now you have a pace and you have a meter of how you work in a kitchen and how you see well, things play out that was based on the fact that so many chefs i mean actually every single chef that I cooked with did not use a timer. I mean, so uh, when I cooked with Gary Denko in San Francisco, he was making a blueberry crostata and he put it in the oven. And I said, oh, are you going to set a timer for that? And he looked at me like I was, (laughs) like I had just said, you know, are you going to fly to the moon like with your magical wings? It was just like, (laughs) he, it it was incomprehensible to him that he would set a timer because he's a chef and he just knows when it's done. Yeah. And just that concept for home cooks is probably really scary. Like, wow, put something in the oven without setting a timer. But what it really means is, and this is, I think, if, if there's one lesson, overarching lesson from the whole book, it's to really be engaged with the food as you make it. And chefs are just deeply engaged in what's happening in the kitchen at all times, including what's in the oven, what it smells like, what it's looking like, how it's transforming. They're just incredibly aware of all those things, which is what all those 10 essential rules at the front of the book, like tasting as you go and all that stuff is all about being engaged with food as you're making it. Let's talk about being engaged with food. Um, who was the first chef to get you in the kitchen and get you dirty? It was, I mean, it wasn't just you interviewing this person, watching them cook. You had your hands in the mix. Actually, of all the chefs, the one... Because, I mean, a lot of it had to do with control. I mean, chefs are control freaks. I mean, they are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you, if you care enough to, like, put, like, a single grain of Malden sea salt on top of your, you know piece of you know crudo that you're serving then you probably are very controlling about what goes on in your kitchen so the most shockingly uh liberal chef in terms of letting me cook was jonathan waxman and i have to say he's he he's famous for having taught bobby flay how to cook and he's an incredible teacher so i showed up at his kitchen in barbuto um in manhattan and he did not lift a finger he said okay grab a pan (laughs) grab a knife and we're gonna start and and he walked he actually walked me through six dishes i was only able to include three in the book um but that 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 trust in me to just go for it. He's actually the first one I have in the book because yeah. just that 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 feeling of being in this you know master chef's kitchen and letting him uh, or him letting me just go for it. It just filled me with such confidence and made me such a great cook. Just just because he believed that I could do it. That um, so I got dirty and I got busy in his kitchen and then um, and then from there I mean all all the chefs though I mean I, I really did get my hands in the bowls and you know cut you know touch everything and cook everything yeah i mean and even when i didn't i mean i went home and then and cooked all these recipes at home so yeah whatever i didn't do in the chef's kitchen i would then do at home and then often email the chef to ask questions like okay why did mine not come out <laughs> like yours you know? well i mean let's talk about jonathan and the dishes you actually uh you know worked on in his kitchen and are printed in the book the gnocchi with eggplant tomatoes the arugula salad with heirloom tomatoes and the fish stew with cod swordfish and mussels had you ever made any of those before um, I mean, I'm sure I've made an arugula salad, but what what was interesting is just like his approach to things. Like, for example, with the um, arugula salad with cherry heirloom cherry tomatoes, his technique for dressing the salad is to drizzle it with olive oil, drizzle it with lemon juice, and then to take the entire bowl and to toss the salad in the air. And so there's a picture in the book, which is one of my favorite pictures yeah. that um, Lizzie Leitzel, who you know, um, yeah, Elizabeth, who. Uh, 
did the photography for the book uh, took is um, of me tossing the salad into the air and almost half of it sloshing down the side <laughs> of the bowl because obviously I didn't have the technique that he had. So these techniques, you know, I think that's a great example of just a chef technique that you don't normally do at home. I mean, if you dress the salad at home, you probably use salad tongs or you might use your hands. But his whole, the reason he, he has you toss it in the air is so you don't damage the uh, ingredients. So you don't you know, break up the tomatoes with a pair of salad tongs and don't muss it up with your fingers, you know, so you toss it in the air. Um, and then again, like all his stuff that he taught me, it's like the specific techniques, like getting the pan really hot for the gnocchi. He has to use frozen gnocchi, which then he gets, you get, um, it gets kind of browned in the butter. So you get this like toasted, like really beautiful dark brown gnocchi uh, with heirloom tomatoes and Fresno chilies and scallions. It's a great recipe. I mean, I'm just looking at this list of chefs, and it's just mind blowing that you got to be in all those kitchens. I know. Not, not even a stagiaire in, in you know <laughs> culinary school gets to travel like this, so it, it's wonderful access. And I, it not only speaks volumes of what you've done here and the respect that you've garnered from them, but the respect I have for the industry to allow a project like this to happen. Oh wow! Yeah, so I mean, it was really. I feel very lucky. And um, and actually, I'm really excited because I'm going to be doing a book tour now where I'm going to be cooking with, I'm not cooking, but like uh, hosting dinners with a lot of these chefs. Uh, like Lydia Bastianich is going to do a dinner at Italy on October 9th. And we're doing dinners at uh, Hugh Atchison's uh, Empire State South in Atlanta. Um, and we're doing one at Tartine After Hours in San Francisco. Awesome. Yeah. And Renee Erickson's Walrus and the Carpenter and Pizzeria Moza, uh, Nancy Silverton. So, I mean, it's uh, pretty exciting that, that these chefs not only let me into their kitchens to write the book, but now they're also sort of standing behind the book as I go on tour for it uh, in two where, weeks. Where can people find, uh, well, tickets or reservations for those So, events? I just did a post on my blog, yeah. amateurgourmet.com. Um, and if you look on the top, there's a link to the Secrets of the Best Chefs page, and then there's the book tour information there. And there's links to all the restaurants and the reservation sites and all that stuff. So Now, will you be working the line at all these dinners? <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what they're going to expect me to do, but I'm yeah. going to call them all up now and make you at least play <laughs> one dish. I'll make all the food. Yeah, yeah. that's really funny. Well, I mean, I, I know at the very least I'll be introducing all the dishes as they come out of the kitchen. Yeah. So, and if people want me to cook them, I guess I can do that too. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, new techniques, new tips. I mean, you must be hungry for more now after having such an amazing education of how to cook and, you know, all these new ingredients and dishes. What other cuisines, what other restaurants, what other chefs do you want to approach? Uh, you well, know? see, I have my idea for the sequel already, yeah. which is Secrets of the Best European Chefs. <laughs> and I want to go for the next book. I want to go to Europe, you know, and sort of, I think that's the next phase, right? It's sort of like, because I feel like all my like chef heroes and cookbook heroes uh, have all done time in Europe, yeah. you know? So I feel like that would be the next book um, to try to cook with, you know, all the great European chefs, you know, from like Alan DeCoste to... Um, Fergus Henderson to, you know, um, all those people. So I feel like that's the next book. If you guys buy enough copies of this book, <laughs> I'll be able to write the next one. Yeah. Um, let's talk about these chefs again. I mean, again, it, it's such an amazing grouping of chefs. What have you cooked recently? Uh, and which restaurants have you revisited? Because you're not just a home cook. You know, you, you still like to go out and eat. Um, well, what have I cooked recently from the yeah. book? Um, oh, actually, one of my favorite recipes from the book is from Gina De Palma, who's the pastry chef at Babo. And she has a lentil soup in the book. And, and actually, one of the reasons is it's my favorite recipe or one of my favorite recipes in the book is it's such a, has a, there's actually really an emotional story attached to it, which is when I cooked with her, she'd just been getting over stage four ovarian cancer. And um, 
and so she told me the story while when I was with her in her home kitchen that her mother, while she was going through radiation and all these things, would make her this lentil soup, and it would help you know kind of heal her. That there's the power of soup. So when she taught me how to make this lentil soup, it had all this personal meaning for her. Which to me, that's there's nothing like that with a recipe. I mean, recipes that are just all about technique and not there's no story attached. Yeah, that doesn't do anything for me. But but if there's some emotional reason that somebody loves something, I think that makes it so much more meaningful to to have. So that's one of my favorite soups. And it's also just a very delicious soup. Um, one of the techniques that she taught me is you make this lentil soup. It has sausage in it and it has um, kale or whatever greens you want to use. But at the very end, you get a pan of olive oil. You add a bunch of sliced garlic and you sizzle the garlic and the oil and you pour it into the soup and stir it in. So it infuses the whole soup with garlic flavor and that's really incredible. Yeah. Um, and in terms of restaurants, God, I mean, like, I I can't even keep track anymore because I just like cause I just got back to New York. I've been living in L.A. for the past year because my partner is in the film industry, so we moved out there. But I'm back here for a little while, and uh, I've just been like, you know, out of the gate going to all different <laughs> kinds of restaurants. And I, you know, often I'll go back to some of these chefs' restaurants and like Rebecca Charles from Pearl Oyster Bar. I mean, she's almost become a friend um, because I go there so often, and she's such a wonderful chef. Um, but I've also been visiting a bunch of new restaurants too. What did Rebecca teach you in the book? Rebecca taught me... Actually, her chapter ended up being about two two pans and a pair of tongs because she had these two small uh, pans, uh, stainless steel um, pans that she would use these two pans and a pair of tongs to make the most incredible plated restaurant dishes. Like in one pan, she'd add a little oil and sear fish, while in the other pan, she would cook corn and heirloom tomatoes and sugar snap peas with some butter. And then the way she timed it is that like by the time she flipped the fish over, the, the vegetables would be cooked. She put them onto a plate, and then she put the fish on top, and then she would clean the pans, and then she went on to the next dish where she'd do like a skate wing with like peas and potatoes. But it was, again, those two pans and the pair of tongs. So for me, it was just like mind-blowing that you can just have these three pieces of equipment, you know, two hands and a pair of tongs and then make this incredible looking restaurant food yeah and again it was about getting those pans really hot and controlling the temperature and you know and um and just having the timing right and and actually the rhythm of that like almost like a great musician the way that she just had the rhythm going you know getting this pan on the heat getting the other one on the heat and just following that rhythm and then getting into it at home that was really fantastic so have you become a two pan one plate kind of guy or have you (laughs) expanded your pantry uh to the point where you almost need your family's four stoves (laughs) well you know it's that's interesting i mean i think um my general way of cooking at home is more family style like that that way of cooking is great, actually, for cooking for one, because you are you are preparing like a single fa- a single plate of food when you do that. Um, and then if I'm cooking for a crowd, I think like cooking a piece of fish might be harder. So I'll do like a big bowl of you know a big pot of chili, or, like a big a big like casserole or something. I tend to do that more often. But it's great to know that like if I do want to cook for myself, I can make a really delicious uh, you know restaurant quality uh, plate for myself at home. Yeah. So. Thank you again for being on. Oh, this is great. This, yeah. this is a fantastic collection to anybody's, uh, of any skill level, because I think chefs also get insight from chefs. You know, uh, it's not just the amateur gourmet trying to become professional. I think it's a wonderful professional's guide by professionals. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, I appreciate yeah, that. And I, I'm on board if you need someone to tag along in Europe for volume <laughs> oh, Don't tell Lizzie that. Okay. No, no, no. I'm just eating. Oh, uh, you're just eating? Okay. She, she can take all the photographs all right. you can be here watch for, me expand. Photographer's assistant. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for having <laughs> me on the show. It was a lot thank of fun. you, Adam. Everyone go out. Check out The Secrets of the Best Chefs. 
out soon by Artisan. And uh, check out the Amateur Gourmet for those upcoming dinners and events. And do ask for Adam to get on the line and plate your, <laughs> your dish. I don't know if you want that. No. But okay. <laughs> Excellent. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 